is the evening of Sunday, the 12th of June, 1994, and Ronald Lyle Goldman is a happy man. He's just got off work at the Mezzaluna restaurant in Brentwood, and he has plans to meet a friend. Still only 25 years old, he's been in LA for a few years now, and he feels right at home, having left his father and sister behind in his native Illinois. Ron is a good-looking man. He's tanned, has dark features and jet black hair that he combs into the popular curtain style and his frame is tall and muscular. But don't let his intimidating frame give you the wrong impression. Ron is a friendly and popular man, well-liked by everyone he meets and particularly close with his younger sister. It says a lot about Ron that he's volunteered to return a pair of glasses to their owner, or at least to the daughter of their owner. Nicole Brown had dined with her family at the restaurant that evening, and her mother had accidentally left her glasses on the table. No matter, said Ron. I'll drop them at Nicole's. I'm going that way anyway. Nicole Brown is a regular at the restaurant and Ron knows her well enough. He'll just give the glasses to her and carry on his way to meeting his buddy. He approaches Nicole's condo in Brentwood as darkness covers Los Angeles on a perfect California summer evening. He barely notices the white Ford Bronco parked outside. Hello Ministry of History fans and history fans in general. Welcome back to the podcast and welcome to part two of the OJ Simpson scandal. In part one, we saw how OJ Simpson exhibited narcissistic behavior from an early age and further exhibited violent, controlling behavior in his turbulent marriage to Nicole Brown. In this episode, we discuss the horrific murders of Nicole and her friend, Ron Goldman, and the arrest, charging, and trial of OJ Simpson that resulted from them. A once-loved sports star and actor was on trial for his life, and a fascinated nation was split right down the middle. Once again, I've got a lot to get through today, but since this is the last episode of the series, I just wanted to give you a couple of quick reminders. Firstly, to check out the blog. It's the Ministry of History on Google, and it's the top result. There's so many fascinating, interesting stories on there. Bizarre and wonderful stories. Many more stories than I've done podcasts on many more stories than I could ever hope to do podcasts on. Even if the world starts to open up in these coming months, and I think we all hope and pray that it does, I'm sure you'll still have some spare time to kill. And what better way to do it than by reading some wacky stories from history? Don't forget to check that blog out. 
Secondly, there's my Twitter page. It's at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle. On there, you'll be the first to know about new blogs, new podcasts and all the rest of it. And then there's my donation page on the Buy Me A Coffee website. The link for which is in the description for this podcast. As I've said to you countless times before, I don't have delusions of becoming fabulously wealthy by doing this blog and podcast, but there are costs I need to pay. And any little donation you could make really would be hugely appreciated. And finally, please, please don't forget to leave a review. If you have a spare moment, just whack that five star button and it really would help the podcast to grow. Now then, all that tedious housekeeping stuff is out the way. So it's time to take you back to Los Angeles in June 1994. The California sun is shining, but two families are about to endure their darkest day. The scene that detectives were met with in the early hours of Monday, the 13th of June, 1994, was a shocking one. The stone pathway to the upscale condo was covered in blood. Two victims lay dead, a woman and a man, both stabbed multiple times in what was clearly a frenzied attack. A dog was whimpering in the corner, her little paws covered in blood, and two children were asleep upstairs. Mercifully, they had slept right through the attack and wouldn't wake up for another few hours. A couple of facts were established in those crucial first few moments of the investigation. Firstly, it was ascertained that the victims had likely died at some time between 10 and 11 o'clock that night. The female victim was likely attacked first and she was found lying at the bottom of the stairs that led to the front door. The male victim was lying a few yards to her side, under a tree next to the stairs, and was likely attacked after the initial attack on the woman. Both victims had a couple of defensive wounds on their hands, but nothing that indicated a prolonged struggle. Whoever the perpetrator was, they had overpowered their victims very quickly. Along with those immediate observations, detectives found a few clues. A trail of bloody footprints led down the path and off the property. Of course, you didn't need to be a detective to figure out that those were the footprints of the killer. Another trail next to the footprints indicated that the killer was bleeding from their left hand as they fled the scene. But more importantly, police found a bloody left hand leather glove 
lying in between the two victims. Detectives were surprised to identify the female victim as Nicole Brown, the estranged wife of O.J. Simpson. It wouldn't be for another few hours that the male victim was identified as Ronald Goldman. Now, since O.J. Simpson was still technically married to Nicole at the time of her death, their divorce wasn't final, he was her next of kin, and so a patrol car was dispatched to his house to inform him that his wife had been killed. The Simpson residence on Rockingham Avenue was eerily quiet. Having received no answer at the gate, Detective Mark Furman hauled himself over the fence to open the gate for his colleagues. Now, I want you to remember that name, Mark Furman. He is going to become another vital figure in this story. In any case, Furman and his colleagues received no answer when they knocked on the front door of O.J. Simpson's house, so they tried a bungalow that was next door to the main house, still on Simpson's property. This time, they did get an answer when they knocked on the door, from an actor called Brian Kalin, who was better known by his stage name of Cato Kalin. Kalin informed the police that O.J. Simpson wasn't at home. He had travelled to Chicago late the previous night. The detectives were relieved, firstly, that O.J. Simpson hadn't been harmed, and secondly, that maybe he might not be the killer. Still, they searched around the property, and they found another clue. They found the right-hand glove that matched the left-hand one that was found at the murder scene. O.J. Simpson returned to LA the following afternoon, having been phoned by police about Nicole's death. By this time, news crews surrounded his home and actually caught footage of him being handcuffed in his garden. Simpson emerged from the property some time later, unhandcuffed, and voluntarily went for questioning at the police station. This initial interview was cordial, but OJ was evasive. He gave long, vague answers about where he had been the previous night, and he couldn't quite explain how he had sustained a large cut on his left hand. He claimed that he had broken a glass while he was in Chicago, and the detectives nodded along. But of course, they weren't convinced at all. Simpson was allowed to leave the station and return to his home that Monday evening. The world's media was camped outside, and as the week progressed, speculation was rife about the direction of the investigation. It seemed that O.J. Simpson was about to be arrested. 
One of his lawyers, Robert Shapiro, organised a deal with the LAPD. Simpson would surrender to police at 11 o'clock in the morning on Friday the 17th of June. But 11 o'clock came and the time was pushed back a little and then a little further. By half past one in the afternoon, there was still no sign of him and a detective informed an astonished press room that the police were now actively searching for OJ Simpson as a fugitive from justice. I'm sure that most of you have seen the infamous footage from that evening, but if you haven't, it really was quite a sight to behold. OJ Simpson's white Ford Bronco being pursued by multiple police cars. Actually, it's not quite as dramatic as that sounds. This was no high-speed chase. Rather, the Bronco led its pursuers at a leisurely pace, driven by Simpson's friend, Al Cowlings, with an overly emotional OJ in the back seat. There were fears that OJ was suicidal, and he allegedly held a gun to his head, but his handover to police custody was eventually negotiated without trouble. Extraordinary though those scenes were, played on news stations across the world, I wanted to focus a little more on something else that OJ Simpson did that day. Before he hopped into the Bronco, around the time he was meant to have handed himself into police, he sent another of his lawyers, Robert Kardashian. And yes, if you didn't know, he was the father of those Kardashians. To read a letter to the press on his behalf. You'll have to forgive me for another lack of impartiality here. But the letter was self-pitying drivel. Simpson mentions that he loves Nicole but he makes no attempt to celebrate her life or anything of that nature. Rather, the letter celebrates his life. Remember the real OJ, it begs its audience, not this forsaken man who is now forced to live the rest of his days under suspicion. Aside from being everything but an admission of guilt, we see some more of O.J. Simpson's mentality here. He's the real victim, not Nicole. Why can't everyone see his pain? It also says much about him that he sends Kardashian out to read the letter for him. Friends were expendable, expected to do their bit, carry their weight for O.J. Simpson. On the 22nd of July, 1994, O.J. Simpson appeared in court in Los Angeles and was asked by a judge how he would plead. His reply? Quote, Absolutely, 100% not guilty. So, 
By the end of July 1994, O.J. Simpson has been arrested and charged, and we're heading to trial. It might seem for all the world that the evidence against him is overwhelming. He had a motive to kill his wife. There was a well-documented history of domestic abuse. Evidence, motive, behavioural patterns. It's an open and shut case, right? That's certainly what the prosecution thought. But not so fast. From the moment the preliminary hearing started, it became clear that this case was going to be far more complicated than anyone had thought. I told you some time ago that race was going to become incredibly important in this story and it's now time to explore that a little further. You can't understand the murders themselves without understanding the background to them and the type of man that O.J. Simpson was. Similarly, you can't understand the trial without understanding the context, particularly the racial context, in Los Angeles in the mid-1990s. For the previous few decades, there had been a great deal of racial tension in LA. Just as in other cities across the states, there was a burning sense of injustice among the African-American community, and crucially, there was a sense that the police were some of their chief oppressors. In 1965, huge riots had broken out after a scuffle between a black man and white police officers in the Watts region of LA. More pertinent to our story though, was the infamous Rodney King incident in 1991. King, a black man, was stopped by police after a chase and viciously beaten in the street, laying defenseless as several white policemen kicked him and beat him with batons. That very same month, March of 1991, a Korean store owner shot and killed a teenage black girl because she feared that the girl wanted to steal some orange juice. It transpired that the girl had the money to pay for the juice in her hand and that, far from being a threat to the woman, she had been looking away from her killer when the shots were fired. These incidents were bad enough, but what really incensed the African-American community of LA was the lack of accountability. Four policemen were acquitted of using excessive force against Rodney King, even despite the video evidence and that was a verdict which led to days of riots in 1992. And as for the woman who killed the black teenager, well, she was let off with probation and a $500 fine. 
Of course, the woman in that case was Asian rather than white. But the fact remains that these incidents create a poisonous racial atmosphere in the mid-1990s. The African-American community, quite justifiably in my opinion, felt cheated by the justice system. It would be too simplistic and not quite accurate to suggest that the African-American community of LA was looking for some sort of revenge trial. But it's certainly not inaccurate to say that in this atmosphere, OJ Simpson's defence strategy practically wrote itself. The police are racist. The justice system is racist. A beautiful white blonde woman and her handsome white friend are murdered. And look who the police have charged. Another black man. Typical. That this would be Simpson's defence strategy became clear when he hired another lawyer to his defence team. It was Johnny Cochran, a larger-than-life black lawyer who had made his name pursuing white police officers for infringements against black people. Cochran was a hero in the African-American community in LA, admired for his habit of taking white police officers to the cleaners in the courtroom. His appointment confirmed two things about the trial ahead. Firstly, that it was going to be a media circus. There's no doubt that Cochrane had earned his place as a well-respected lawyer, but there's also no doubt that he was not shy of the spotlight. He absolutely loved being in front of the cameras. Adding him to a team that included Bob Shapiro, who was known in Hollywood as something of a fixer for celebrities, and the fame-hungry attorney Francis Lee Bailey, ensured that this trial was going to be as much about image and drama as it was about justice. Secondly, of course, Cochrane's appointment confirmed that the defence strategy would be to try to portray O.J. Simpson as an unfairly targeted black man, put in the frame by racist police officers who were determined to put a successful black man back in his place. It would be up to the prosecution to prove otherwise. For all of these reasons, the venue of the trial became absolutely critical. The four police officers in the Rodney King case had been tried in an affluent, predominantly white area of Los Angeles, and they were duly acquitted. That caused a headache for the prosecution. Should they attempt to try the case in another predominantly white area, leaving themselves open to accusations of a whitewash, Simpson's defence team certainly wouldn't hesitate to level those accusations at them, and that would be disastrous for the authorities, and particularly the district attorney, Gil Garcetti. The other option 
was to have the trial in downtown Los Angeles, with more black people sitting on the jury. That presented another risk, in that black people would naturally be more receptive to the argument that Simpson had been set up by racist cops. The defence basically had the prosecution cornered on that issue, so the venue was indeed set for downtown LA. It was already 1-0 to the defence. And it was soon 2-0. The jury pool in this part of LA heavily skewed toward minorities and the prosecution were forced to accept a jury that was made up of nine black people two white and one Hispanic. As the lead prosecutor, Marcia Clark, would later reflect, the prosecution were playing catch-up before the trial had even begun. The trial began on Tuesday, the 24th of January, 1995, the prosecution set their stall out straight away. O.J. Simpson was a manipulative wife-beater who couldn't cope with the fact that his wife had left him and was prospering without him. He had the history, he had the motive and, the prosecution contended, the evidence would show him to be the killer, beyond a reasonable doubt. Up stepped Johnny Cochran on the 25th of January to slap the prosecution down. Evidence, they say? Evidence produced by who, exactly? Evidence produced by a racist police force who had a history of framing black people for crimes they didn't commit. Evidence some of which just so happened to be found by one detective in particular. You'll recall that earlier in this episode, I told you to remember the name of the detective who hopped over OJ Simpson's fence in the early hours of the 13th of June, 1994. The man who found the other glove, the one that matched the glove at the crime scene, Detective Mark Furman. Well, the defence was keen to highlight his history in particular. Let me put this generously. Mark Furman had a history of saying some pretty racist things. Or, let's not be so generous. Detective Mark Furman was a racist. There was a whole catalogue of derogatory comments that the defence worked through. N-words here, N-words there. Witnesses who said he had fumed about black men who dated white women. The defence's aim was not only to paint the image of a systemically racist police force and a racist justice system, but to insinuate that Mark Furman had planted the glove at O.J. Simpson's property. And if that glove had been planted, then what about the other evidence? 
how could the jury possibly trust that the so-called evidence stacked against OJ Simpson wasn't just part of an operation to frame him? Of course, the idea of OJ Simpson being framed certainly wouldn't have seemed impossible to the nine black people sitting on the jury. The defence kept driving that point home. When the prosecution presented new evidence, such as DNA testing that showed that Simpson's blood was present at the crime scene, the defence's response was simple. The police had planted it there. The blood in OJ's car? Yep, that sounds like another dirty police trick. The prosecution then made a terrible mistake on the 15th of June 1995 when they asked OJ Simpson to try on the glove that had been found at his home. Simpson made a real pig's ear of the job, making it obvious that he was struggling to fit his hand in the glove. Whether or not you think that Simpson was feigning the whole thing, and I certainly do, what's undeniable is that the prosecution were playing right into the defence's hands. Married to the defence strategy of presenting OJ Simpson as the victim of an elaborate framing operation was a conscious attempt to make him seem, for want of a better phrase, as black as possible. When the jury were taken to Simpson's home, the defence team removed any pictures of OJ with his white friends and replaced them with photos of him with his black friends. The defence lawyers even wore ties that had traditional African patterns on them. Now this type of stuff seems silly, trivial, even comical, but it was all part of a deliberate attempt to get those nine black people on the jury to consciously or subconsciously think that OJ Simpson was one of them, to get them to identify with him. And if they identified with him, then they were far less likely to return a guilty verdict. And that point leads nicely on to the next point, which is that this was pure theatre more than it was a trial. It was broadcast live across America every day. Journalists from across the world camped outside the courtroom and ambushed both defence and prosecution as they arrived each morning and went home each afternoon. The trial made celebrities of the lawyers, the witnesses, the judge. You can't exactly blame the media for paying attention to the story. It was an irresistible story after all. But in terms of the actual trial itself, the merits of the arguments on both sides, well, the media circus just made it all a complete farce. Closing arguments began on the 26th of September, 1995. The prosecution set out their stall again. 
Simpson was a domestic abuser who had the motive to kill his wife and all the evidence pointed towards him. The defence, meanwhile, repeated their claims that Simpson was set up by a racist police force led by the racist detective Mark Furman, who Johnny Cochran compared to Hitler in a fiery speech, the speech in which he also uttered that now famous line, if the glove does not fit, then you must acquit. The jury was sent away to deliberate on Monday the 2nd of October. People across the country cancelled their plans. Politicians cancelled news conferences. President Bill Clinton was given security briefings about the potential reaction to the verdict. America and the world held its breath. Just after 10 o'clock on the morning of Tuesday, the 3rd of October, 1995, after less than 24 hours of deliberations, the jury announced its verdict. Not guilty on both counts. As if it needed to be highlighted any more, the reaction to the verdict was split largely down racial lines. White people in general were horrified, stunned, outraged that a man who in their minds was so obviously guilty had literally got away with murder. But many black people celebrated the verdict. Many of them genuinely believed that OJ was an innocent man who had been framed. But some of them didn't care either way. They just thought that it was about damn time that the justice system worked for a black man instead of throwing him to the dogs. And to be honest, you can't really blame any black people who had that attitude. Now, I made my own feelings clear at the start of this podcast. I don't see how any fair-minded person can look at this case and conclude that OJ Simpson wasn't guilty. He's surely one of the guiltiest men who's ever been on trial for anything. But, and there is a but, the blame for him getting off should not so carelessly be thrown at the black jurors who refused to condemn him. It doesn't matter what I think, and I have no problem acknowledging that I'm far removed from this case, only observing it as an outsider a quarter of a century later. I was born in 1996, two years after the murders and one year after the trial. I was born and raised in London, not Los Angeles, not even America. And I'm white, not black. If I had been a black person, born, say, in the mid-20th century in Los Angeles, would I have had a different perspective? If I had been brought up in the shadow of the Watts riots of 1965, 
If I had been subjected to police harassment, or knew people who had been, if I had seen policemen caught on camera subjecting a black man to a vicious beating and still being acquitted, would I feel differently? And if my already slim trust in the police was challenged even further by the revelation that the most important detective in the case against OJ Simpson was a verifiable racist, would I have been open to believing that it was all a giant setup? The answer to all of those questions is yes. And that gets to the crux of this case. Two people were murdered, but that's not really what the story has become about. It's become a story where so many different themes meet in a tragic way. The power of celebrity and wealth, allowing a man to cover up years of domestic abuse and escape any punishment for it. The misogyny of that man and the culture around him, which encouraged him in his abuse and made it difficult for his wife to escape it. The superficiality of a modern media culture that prized drama and storylines over a fair trial, making celebrities of its protagonists, but making a mockery of the judicial process. And of course, America's deep racial scars, so horribly exposed in a case which effectively became a referendum on the justice system and on the police force in particular. All of these themes and the way they meet in one story are what makes the story so compelling. That's why I wanted to cover it. But I don't want to repeat the injustice of ignoring the victims in this case. After all, two people had their lives horrifically snuffed out. Ronald Lyle Goldman, a loving brother and son, a friend to many who had only really just begun his life, but who in death became an almost pathetic figure, the sideshow in a much bigger drama. Make no mistake, Ron Goldman is the forgotten victim in all of this. And of course, Nicole Brown, a loving sister, daughter and mother who had rediscovered herself and was at the start of an exciting chapter in her life without her abusive husband. She would only be 61 years old if she were alive today. Ron Goldman would only be 52. That alone just highlights what a tragic waste those deaths were and what an injustice it was that their killer never paid for the crime. And that was part two of the O.J. Simpson scandal. And that was also the final episode in series two of the Ministry of History podcast, which has been all about historical scandal. There will be a series three. I haven't quite decided what the theme will be, but rest assured I'll be working on it soon. 
In the meantime, I just need to give the reference that I've been using for pretty much part the whole of part one and part two of the OJ Simpson scandal. And that was OJ Made in America, a documentary produced by the BBC and available on BBC iPlayer.